Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. So glad that you're with us today. Today we're going to begin a new book. So we begin 3 John. That's the third letter the Apostle John is writing. And this gives us an opportunity to kind of look at the occasion again, the background, a little bit of the historical aspects of this letter. I always enjoy beginning a new book. I think whenever you're studying a new book on your own uh, and you begin one, you need to really uh, kind of take that opportunity to find the history, the occasion, the purpose, the author, the date, the place of writing, and give you give yourself good context for understanding uh, the letter. Uh, now, we believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Everything that God has desired to say to us he has spoken through His Word. We also believe in the perpiscuity of God. That's a fancy word, meaning that there is a particular thing that God intended in the Word, in the Scripture, in the passage that you're studying. There is an intention that He has. There is one meaning, not multiple meanings, not hidden meanings, not mysterious, spooky meanings that only spiritual people can figure out. No, when you apply the proper study and hermeneutics and the understanding of the original language in the context of the writing, and you put your mind to it and you study and look at the, uh, a little bit of the history, you can clarify and understand what God intended. What God intended when John, in this case, wrote this letter. This not only keeps us safe, but it keeps us in context, allows us to really understand the, 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 the Word. It really understands, helps us to understand what it means. And I'm going to give you a good illustration of that as uh, this passage allows us to do that as well. There's going to be a part of this passage that I'm going to explain uh, that will uh, uh, help maybe shed some light on this idea. Just a little reminder, 1 John... Um, the first epistle was written to encourage Christians and to warn them against false teachers. And then if you remember, the second letter was written to a woman who had either inadvertently or purposely entertained false prophets in her home and uh, shown them hospitality. And so John was warning against that. But now in this third epistle, in third John, he's going to write to Gaius and he's going to encourage them to be hospitable to good teachers. So in one letter, he's warning against false teachers, and then he's warning against showing hospitality to false teachers, and now he's encouraging hospitality towards good teachers. Okay, the point of this letter is that John is going to encourage the opposite of what he discouraged in the second letter. So in his second letter, he discouraged showing hospitality to false prophets, but now he's going to encourage showing hospitality to true teachers of God's Word. Now, there was evidently someone in the church that was under the leadership of Gaius who refused to show hospitality to true teachers, and he also punished those who had shown hospitality to them. Now, this is not Gaius himself, but someone who is under uh, Gaius's leadership, and maybe a, maybe, a, maybe an elder in the church. So this is the issue that John is writing to uh, and he, to address, right, in this third and this final letter. Um, this letter was mostly written from Ephesus about the same time that he wrote First and Second John, okay? So let's get into it. 
We're going to read and see if we can get through verses 1 through 8 today, and I'll, I'll read that, and then I'm going to break it down as we like to do. So if you have your Bible, we're in 3 John, verses 1 through 8. There's only one chapter in this small epistle. Here's what uh, John wrote. He said, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Sorry, expecting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we are to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Well, we know by now, as we've been reading from the Apostle John, that he loves to talk about the truth. He loves the truth. And in just this this passage alone, he mentions the truth five different times. He's also talking about hospitality, which would have been critically important in that era. If you study the history, you know that, and you hear often about middle, in the Middle East, the, the hospitality uh, that was shown there was an important uh, kind of cultural virtue, one, maybe one of the most important virtues a person could have. In John's time, this was critically important because there was a real danger for those who happened to be traveling. Traveling was treacherous, often very dangerous. There weren't the availability of uh, hotels as we know them. There was no Airbnb. (laughs) So often, I mean, most often people who were traveling were really at the mercy of those that they would come in contact with. They would rely on the hospitality of either family or friends or total strangers. Suffice it to say that in the Middle East in that time, hospitality was considered a key virtue for for multiple reasons, and this was especially so among Christians. So we need to understand that when we hear hospitality in the New Testament, there's a different kind of meaning and connotation, higher level of importance and significance than we might think of it today. I think even in the last 30 years. Think about us in, in the United States of America, the idea of having people over to our homes it has changed. I mean, when I was a kid and the doorbell rang, we'd run to go get the door. Now when the doorbell rings, we, we think, who in the world would be coming over to our house? It's got to be a salesperson who didn't see the sign that said no soliciting, right? So we understand that we have a completely different concept when it comes to hospitality. We don't even rely on family members. Often when we travel, we go to see family members and we either stay in a hotel or an Airbnb. Maybe we stay with them, but not for very long. Matter of fact, some of you are going to travel to see your family. You make sure that you don't stay with them. Okay, we won't get into that. So we're gonna, we've got to take this out of our current cultural context and see it in the way that John would have been writing, how the Christians at that time would have understood it when we say hospitality. In the ancient world, hospitality was a sacred duty. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it says, The Lord protects the strangers, and God 
charges you not to oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. Then we even see through the Old Testament the hospitality of faithful believers multiple times, like Abraham provided food for a couple of angels, and Laban offered hospitality to Abraham, if you remember that. And uh, Jethro gave hospitality to Moses, and Samson's parents, for example, entertained an angel of the Lord. And uh, so the Shunammite woman gave uh, hospitality to Elijah. I think that's the one that even built an addition onto her home so that whenever Elijah was around, he would have a place to stay. When Jonah—no, no, it wasn't Jonah. Who was it? Job. Job. When Job— wanted to defend himself against the attacks and accusations of his so-called friends there when he was going through all of his trial, he defended himself by saying that he had taken care of strangers. Hey, I've opened my doors to the traveler. So among Christians, among, uh, let's say, Old Testament saints, uh, Old Testament saints would have understood that we take care of the stranger, we take care of the outsider, we show hospitality to the outsider. It goes even further with Jesus. Uh, when he called his disciples and he sent them out, he said, don't carry any money, belt or bag or shoes, and greet no one along the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house, and if that peace returns to you, your, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. So if there's a man of peace there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the labor is worthy of his wages, and don't keep moving from house to house. So hospitality was important. Even in Jesus' ministry, he received hospitality from Zacchaeus uh, in the Samaritan village, if you remember. He stayed there. Whenever he visited the area and region where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, he was always in their home. When he stayed in that region, when he was on the road to Emmaus, uh, he was taken into their home. He was shown hospitality. Peter and Paul also experienced hospitality from other uh, believers. And the author of Hebrews even said, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. You remember? So, We need to remember also, historically, the earliest church buildings, per se, didn't come along until the 3rd century, so the 200s, if you can imagine that. So when the Apostle John was writing this, the only churches that existed were those in people's homes. So there was this close link between ministry and homes that that we don't have today, and we don't need to have today, by the way. Any of the methods or forms of the church, such as meeting in homes, that's not sacred in and of itself. That's just a method. It's no more spiritual to meet in a home than it is to meet in a church. It's not to say that the third century church became more carnal because it had buildings. We don't need to get caught up in all that stuff. We don't need to try to recreate the first century church. You definitely don't want to recreate uh, the Corinthian church, for example. There are some people who are big into like, we need to go back to the first century. No, we can't go back to the first century. We're, we're the church in this century under a sovereign God who knows what century we're in. And uh, to keep the main things, the main things, and not to try to spiritualize trivial 
methodologies. Okay, I'm coming off of that soapbox now. So when it goes on to tell us who is John writing to, it goes to tell us that he's writing to Gaius. He referred to himself as the elder. First, the elder. John was the last remaining apostle, the only one who had really who had been with Christ, who had remained as an apostle and was still there. He would have been quite old at this time. He says the elder. So not only by age, but also by position, he was the elder. And he says that he uh, is writing to his beloved Gaius. Of course he's beloved. He's called, he's chosen, he's a fellow believer, and we have a special love for one another as believers in Christ that we don't have for the world. And that's clear throughout the New Testament. So, beloved Gaius, and he says that he loves him in truth. John is absolutely, it seems, wrapped up, consumed with the truth. He, want, he loves the truth. And the truth and love are completely linked so that he says he loves him in truth. He's someone who is beloved. He's someone who's saved. And John goes beyond that and says he loves him in truth. Here again, we see this connection between love and truth. This is something important for us to see, especially in our culture right now. Listen, in America, in the New Testament, love and truth are connected. I'm saying this because in our culture, it's common to just say, you know, we need to love everyone and everyone love everyone equally, and there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no real truth. The main thing is just love. Like the Beatles theology, you know, all all's you need is love. But that's not true. You need truth. <laughs> Uh, you you need to love the truth. You need to d- hate what is evil and love what is true and know the difference. So the the Apostle John knew that there was this connection between love and truth. We can't love those things that are not truthful. We would never love what is not true. There are moral standards. There are rights and there are things that are wrong. And we can't love the things that are wrong. And among all of our cultural relativity, we find it difficult these days to call wrong things wrong and right things right. I can't, I'll give you an example. I can't love abortion because it would be lying against the truth. The truth is that life is sacred because it comes from God. There is a sovereign God over all of creation, and I don't have the right to take that life. This is just one of many examples, and I think churches struggle with this. Christians these days struggle with this. We have a hard time calling anything wrong. We have a hard time calling things right, and we think we should just love everything. But, but God does not love everything. He hates sin. He is angry at sin every single day. We should also hate sin, but we love the truth. We love purity. We, we love godliness. We love those things that honor Him, but we despise those things that discredit Him. We despise sin in our own life. We're called daily to repentance. We hate sin. As you grow in your love for the truth, you will grow in your hatred of sin. And you're either hating your sin more and more, or, or you're not growing. 
And it's the same with your love for holiness and the love for truth. And this is what John had. He had a love for the truth. And there's a connection there. Then he goes on to say, Beloved, I pray in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, this this common greeting is a perfect example of what it means to really study and understand the Word of God properly. I've been around <laughs> long enough and in enough charismatic or Pentecostal circles that I've heard preachers take this very phrase and say, and preach this, this, this phrase. They pull it right out of context. They say nothing about where it came from or what it, who it's written to or who it's written by or who it's written from, none of that. And they say, since he's praying, he's saying, hey, that in all respects you can prosper and be in good health, that, that because of this passage, God always wants us to be 100% healthy, just like our soul is always 100% prosperous. So think about this. This was just a common greeting. Hey, I'm praying that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. A very simple and fundamental basic study of this passage shows that this is a common greeting in that era, in that time, saying, I pray that you are well. I'm praying that you're well. This is not to say that Gaius was sick or in need of help or or, or not to say that we should base some Christian theology on always being well and always prospering in everything, just from this one passage. This is the example I'm giving to you uh, just from the very beginning. I, I said it would be best if we study the Word of God and really understand it. And, and when you study it and can understand it and you understand the context, it helps. This also protects us from false teaching where it just pulls a passage out of thin air and makes a theology out of it. No, John is just saying, I hope you're doing well in every area of your life. Gaius, I, I hope you're doing well. Now John goes on to tell him how glad he was to hear that Gaius was walking in the truth. Whenever we hear of walking, we need to understand that the New Testament idea of walking just simply means the way that you're living in your daily conduct. The way that you're living in your daily conduct. So it's understandable that John, as a pastor here, with great pastoral love and concern, I have no greater joy than to hear that you're walking in the truth. What he's saying is, I'm thrilled. I can't think of anything better than to know that you're living your daily life according to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we preached to you. You are living in conformity to the truth. That's the greatest form of worship that you could ever have. And that's your greatest joy as a pastor. I am thrilled to hear that you're walking in the truth. Way to go, is what he's saying, right? Beloved Gaius, walking in the truth. And then he goes on to mention that he had heard of the hospitality and how they had contributed to the needs of the saints, and he was thankful and thrilled for that. That's right. It's good that you're doing this. Now he's going to give him some counsel. He says, you're going to do well then to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. In other words, listen, when you have these folks that you're being hospitable to, give to them. Send them on their way with your blessing and with gifts. It's, it's important that we support these faithful servants of Christ. This is, this is good. This is good and pleasing. 
They're called by God. They're doing God's work. You should take care of them. You should love them. You should provide for them and send them on their way. And and then he says, look, they're not going to get anything from the Gentiles. In other words, the world isn't going to give anything to these people. They're speaking on behalf of the kingdom of God. So it's up to us, fellow believers in Christ, take care of them. According to the New Testament, it's right to them. It's right for them to be paid for their labor as true ambassadors of the gospel. Uh, I will mention that Paul didn't work. Uh, I mean, Paul did work. Paul refused to just take to live off the offerings of others because he wanted to avoid even the, the notion that he was doing it for money. Uh, true ambassadors of Christ will never work just for money. Ever. The fact is, throughout the New Testament, it proves, and and this is true, that what separates false teachers and true teachers is the love of money, among other things. But I think probably mostly how they think about and treat money. There's an old uh, early Christian writing that's called the um, Didache. And it gives a word of advice about how to distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet. Okay? I want you to to hear this. From early Christian writing, the the little wisdom that it gives, here's what it says. Well, welcome every apostle on arriving as if he were the Lord. But he must not stay beyond one day. In case of necessity, however, the next day too. If he stays three, days. He is a false prophet. On departing, an apostle must not accept anything save sufficient food to carry him to his next lodging. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Think about that. Wow. What if that were the standard we had for every teacher we hear or every televangelist? If, if every person we heard on TV begging for money, we immediately said, that's a false prophet. I think, I personally, I think that would be safe for us to do in most all cases. So, in this letter, John was warning about false teachers. In the first letter, he was warning about false teachers. He was encouraging, in the second letter, not to be hospitable to false teachers. And now in this letter, he's saying, now make sure and support the true teachers and be hospitable to them. You can see how important it was to this pastor that his churches would know and be able to discern the difference between a true and a false teacher. So he says, we're to support such men, fellow workers in the truth, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, you should support those people who are preaching the truth. When you support the people who are teaching the truth, the Apostle John is saying that you're partnering with them in their ministry. This is where Jesus said in Matthew, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, partner with those who are doing the Lord's work, and you receive the blessing that they receive in doing it. Receive a prophet refers to embracing their ministry, affirming their calling. Listen, you shouldn't receive anyone who is a false teacher. You shouldn't embrace false teaching. You're going to be a part of them, and you don't want to be a part of them. But on the positive side... If there is someone who is speaking the truth and a part of a, a, a valuable ministry from the Lord, preaching the truth, uh, partner with them, care for them. Their calls, uh, there's this call that John has to support their work and become a source of blessing. 
uh, to them as we are blessed. The Apostle John here is saying the truth, the true teachers need your true support. If you contribute to their ministry, you support them, you love them, your life is also going to be kind of mutually blessed. This is not like so many false teachers teach today that if you, you know, if you sow a seed, you're going to receive a blessing. That's not what I'm saying. He's talking about in the local church where you attend the church, you receive teachers, you support them, you should bless them and be a part of that ministry that is ministering to you. Does that make sense? Of course, one of the themes that really comes out in this, again, is John's love for the truth. Do you love the truth? The truth is so beautiful, so wonderful. The truth is what keeps us safe. Jesus is the truth. His gospel is the truth. His word is true. God can never lie. We are to remain in the truth. We are to love the truth. When we see those teaching the truth, we can give thanks. We can honor the Lord as we honor them as teachers of truth. And teachers of truth are very rare these days, aren't they? So, Father, we thank you today for those who teach us the truth. I thank you, Father, for the pastor of our church and here in, in Spring, Texas, Father. Pray that you'd be with him today and encourage him and strengthen him and the elders of the church. Help us to support them and love them, be an encouragement to them, Father. Bless them today as they do your work, as they minister to your people, as they're a blessing to us. May we be a blessing to them. Father, for all those who are listening, I pray that you would help them to find a church that teaches the truth of your word. Help them to partner with ministries that are teaching the truth. Give us discernment to know the truth from error and give us discernment to know uh, true teachers from false teachers, Father. Help us to be loving and hospitable to those who are in the truth. And we love you, Father. Thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.